the moment you unsubscribe, that's when we're going to put out new episodes. Be careful. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Cameras or Whatever, the podcast for working photographers. I'm Tyler Stallman, and I am Cameron Whitman. And this is this is going to be a fully unedited show. I'm not usually I do a bunch of tinkering and removing of the double speak and ums and ahs. And part of the the way that I'm going to have time to get this episode out is by not doing that. So, uh, Cameron, be on alert. Everything you say. <laughs> will be held against you. And I guess that's a fair warning, or I guess fair notice to everybody else that Cameron makes a lot of mistakes. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. I, I make just as many. Um, and I don't. I kind of don't think people would notice. I, I don't know if it'll be really obvious, the difference, because they're subtle edits, but to me, I really notice them. I don't know. Maybe it's just because I, I listen to it a lot. But everybody write in, tell us, does this sound different than usual? I mean, our voices might sound older because it's been so long, but... <laughs> yeah, I guess so. What has it been, like two months now? I don't remember, but we're not supposed to talk about that. We're supposed to pretend that uh, it hasn't been a long time since we recorded. So uh, since we've been doing the show for a long time, even though we only have, what, we're at 60 episodes here, we've been doing the show at least since, I'm, I'm going back to look, I think it was 2014. I don't know the exact date, Yeah, but I, that sounds exactly right. Yeah, so the first episode was December 11th, 2014. And um, I think it would be a great time to go back and revisit some of our workflow discussion, just some of how do we deal with our photography, what do we do with them as they come in, and how do we save them somewhere safely for a long time archiving, because things change um, a lot in the, in that time. And I don't know, I think a lot of the, the most important things will stay the same, because I think, um, especially for professionals, it's just, it's not as fast moving as for the consumer market. More has changed in the consumer world than for us, I expect. But let's find out, I guess. <laughs> also, I'm hoping to learn some new things from you because I, I think that I've progressed a lot more slowly than you have. I don't know. I don't know if I've progressed. Maybe I've regressed, but we'll, we'll go over it. We'll figure it out. But a, a big thing, so a question I just want to throw on the table that I, I don't think we'll solve today. Something that I've been realizing is a problem that I don't have good answers to is what normal non-photographers, non-professionals, people that don't do this for a job, what they should mm -hmm. be doing with their photos. I really realized I don't know anymore. The Photos app for Mac is meh, not, not great. I don't like the way that it processes images at all. Yeah. And Lightroom's expensive. Like, I don't, I don't know where to point people anymore, you know? Is Lightroom expensive? Relatively. I mean, paying a subscription for... And I'm talking about non-photographers, right? Just like somebody that is like, you know, I want my photos to be a little better and I want to organize them. And when I edit them, I want them to look as good as possible. But this is, you know, it's just... It's the same as how we treat... Uh, wait, what's like a, what's the thing that's not important to us? I don't know. My car. I, just, <laughs> I don't think about my car at all. I do the bare minimum maintenance. I, I just don't want to think about it. It's not that important, but I want it to work properly. I, I, I want it to be fully functional. Um, and I think people are like that with photography. They want their memories to be safe and well-preserved. They want the photos to look as good as possible, but they don't want to dump a lot of money into it. They definitely don't want to pay a subscription just to manage their images when there's free options out there, um, or at right. least a one-time payment option. That's true. Yeah. I guess in, in the grand scheme of things, Lightroom seems so cheap to me. Is it no longer available uh, as a standalone? I don't remember the cheapest pricing. Yeah, I think... It, I th Wait, there's no point in me saying things. Whoever's listening can Google it because I'm gonna. I'm just guessing. I kind of think it's not available yeah. as a standalone anymore. But it, yeah, I think you you kind of have to pay the the piper. Well, and it, it might not even be worth it unless you're really dedicated to using it because they make so many changes that if you buy the standalone, you know you're you're going to get whatever updates are available, I guess. But you're not going to get probably anything good. I don't know. How does that work anymore? It's also it's also just a big program, right? I mean, you really got to commit to it. You have to spend. You have to watch some tutorials. You have to learn bigger how to than use ever. It. Yeah. yeah. So it's not it's not really easy to get into, especially compared to photos. Like the fault in the photos app is all, all the problems are with the simplicity. To me, they try to make it too easy, and in doing that, make it not as good as it could be. Yeah, I've never actually used it. I mean, I haven't had cause to. 
but I, I, I totally recognize how for the average person that must be quite the conundrum, right? Yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't know what to say, but I'm going to try to find an answer. This is my project for the year. Nice. Um, so, well, I guess what we can answer is what do we do? Yeah. You know, how do we work with photos? I think one thing we'd been threatening to try since early on in the episode was Capture One, and uh, neither of us had have made that leap, even though I think we both have seen it get better and better. It is. Yeah. I think it's become a very serious competitor to Lightroom for the, for the kinds of photographers that weren't using Lightroom before because I think it always was more widely adopted in certain cer- shooting circumstances like commercial studio. But mm-hmm. uh, I think it's it's branching out, especially as they're adding more, say, filter packs, more sort of mainstream features to make it easier to do like batch workflows and stuff. Um, they definitely want to get closer to where Lightroom is. Yeah. You know, the, the fascinating thing, I think that for me, it's, you know, I tried it out and it wasn't, I recognized right away that it was one of those situations that I was going to have to invest a lot of time into learning. And I, it's just not a luxury that I have with small kids working and then kids just kind of puts you into a situation where it's like you need things to be as easy as possible otherwise you're just going to skip things that said uh, my colleague Leandro Crespi uh, has become somewhat of a team ambassador over at Stocksy for Capture One and you know over the past two years you know I think that's about the amount of time he's been using it maybe two or three years but over that time I've watched his work improve and I've watched his color consistency and accuracy become what I would probably describe as airtight. And it's not that it's not uh, capable with Lightroom, but it's really impressive to see, especially because those micro separations are just absolutely perfect to what, to the eye. And, you know, I look at that and I just, I think that's, that's impressive. Well, I remember when Lightroom did the big, rewrite of how the raw processing worked like it um it used to look one way and then they just changed it all so the sliders had a few different names they started from zero and uh in the middle instead of zero on the left like they moved around just here's how some of these sliders work differently and all of a sudden a lot of things got infinitely better especially things like the highlight and shadow control it just totally changed and now those became incredibly functional and usable I think we're still waiting for that. We need a new update like that for color in Lightroom because it's not mm-hmm. where it needs to be. I too often see clipped edges of colors and just like falling apart in ways that don't make sense for a professional application that it, it shouldn't be possible to break the colors so badly, uh, especially working within what you'd think are kind of reasonable parameters. You're not doing anything crazy, but you can still really make the image look bad. That's right. And then the, I, I, I'm not sure what this has to do with what the discussion was <laughs> supposed to be, but let's go off on this tangent. Since I work a lot with food, you know, it turns out that a lot of those colors happen to be within the red, orange, yellow, green range. Yep. Yep. Is it just me, or are those ranges the hardest to to separate? Like, I, I feel like the times where you think you're you should be moving a yellow, you're actually moving a green, and vice versa. Oh, totally. Um, the same yeah. thing with red and orange. Yeah, the way they define green uh, will full on, or sorry, yeah, sorry, the way they define green will not change anything that my eyes see as green. It. Right, it's all in the yellow. You have to grab the yellow slider, and then all of a sudden the leaves start moving because apparently the leaves have no green in them. It's really <laughs> not what it's. It's counterintuitive, and the thing is, it, it may be technically accurate. Like I think that is kind of true that what we see as green often is more of a a yellow by the computer's terms, but it makes for worse editing, um, and it makes me feel like I have less control over what's happening. I was actually, yeah. I was editing photos today that have trees in the background that should be green-ish, you know, they're evergreens, and then in the foreground, there's cabins, log cabins, which should be orange, basically, and I yeah. was finding that the orange started to hit those green trees, and that's part of the photo. I mean, it's not it's not entirely Lightroom's fault. The problem is that when HSL sliders aren't customizable at all, there's just that one preset parameter. The preset has to be perfect. And I've got to say, I don't think it is in Lightroom right now. It's it's in a weird place. 
and you can't do anything about it. You can't change it. So, yeah. Anyway, but yeah, we went off on a tangent. Lightroom sucks. We still use it. <laughs> <laughs> Lightroom sucks, but we swear by it. Yeah. Well, and so Somehow. here's a, here's another change that's coming, but hasn't properly hit us yet. And I, I mean, this is actually a little bit of news. It's not that recent. Uh, as of the recording, but that VSCO, Visco decided to drop support for their Lightroom presets, for their film packs, which I think is really big news, yeah. not because they were going to be releasing new ones so fast or that they ever even really updated. The only updates were when they would add new cameras, which didn't happen too often. But the the reason this is the biggest deal to me is that Visco invented a lot of this stuff. They were really doing it first in many ways, like first with a certain kind of look. They were the first ones to do it really well and do real feeling film emulation. Mm-hmm. And now Lightroom has started to move forward with things like profiles. So all of a sudden there's kind of a wider open way to adjust images, right? You can you could you could do a full preset that only lives inside of the profile function without touching any of Lightroom sliders. And then you can also work with the sliders. So now there's reasons you would or wouldn't do that. The profile is usually used to uh, work with the raw colors that are coming out of your photo. So for example, Sony's and Canon uh, raw files look very different. You need to do a little bit of work to just get them looking the same kind of neutral. That's usually what the profiles do. So if you use them as a preset, you can do a little bit of damage. Mm-hmm. But the what I think would be really interesting if I were to be releasing my own preset pack, and uh, I guess I'm just giving away free ideas, is I, I would actually organize my presets in terms of all of the edits on the raw file would be corrective. Like they wouldn't be adding any tonality. They wouldn't be putting any flavor on the images. They would just be Recovering all the detail possible, setting yourself setting yourself up for the cleanest possible image. Then, basically, I'd, I'd, I'd move it through a PSD. So every time you're going to edit it, you need to sort of bake those in. Because if you don't bake those in, any changes you make will will mess with that correction phase. So I'd bake those into a PSD yeah. or a TIFF, and then on top of that, I would layer a profile edit which is uh, basically a LUT. So this is how video editing has been done for a long time. And all of a sudden, you c- that's where your, your flavors come in, right? Your like film, filmic your emulation and stuff. Yeah. So you could separate those two things. First, you correct the image, and then you add your look. Um, and I, I kind of actually work like this a lot of the time right now. A lot of my presets are sort of tuned for PSDs, and uh, I w- I'll only add correction on the DNG. So I, I guess I'm finally getting into the topic. <laughs> it it sounds like we've come all the way back around full circle because I mean that that is how I used to edit before presets came along. You know, I would in Lightroom I would make you know just make things look as accurate as possible, and then I would export to Photoshop as a TIFF, and then that's where I would add whatever flavor look that I wanted. And I used to be able to do all of that right in Photoshop. And now, you know, I don't think I've done that in ages. You know, like if I want a custom look, then I create it in Lightroom now. But do, yeah, so now do you apply that whole custom look all inside of Lightroom? Like by the time you send it to Photoshop, does it more or less have the colors that you want? It does, yeah. yeah. I, stuff, I definitely do that for events, for example. So when there's a, a lot of bulk... I'm not going to be creating PSDs of most of the images. Most of the images stay raw. And in those cases, I'm just going to add a preset to those raw files. And then if something needs a little bit more work, then I'll move it into Photoshop. But for the most part, they stay raw. And I'll do the PSD and then add the look when there's fewer images and each one's very important. They all need to be perfectly perfect. They're all going to Photoshop. That's when I'll do the other style of workflow. That's fascinating. I'd actually like to see that. Well, and something to keep in mind if you decide to do this is that presets will behave very differently when you edit a PSD or a TIFF, even if it's got the the deepest bit rate you can give it and you've saved it at the highest possible quality. Like no matter how high of quality you save a PSD, it is, or, or a TIFF. Um, and by the way, like uh, as far as I know, they're pretty interchangeable. So I'm just going to keep saying PSD, but uh, they are able to kind of capture basically the same quality. Um, 
your sliders will really start to behave differently in Lightroom when you are working on the same image in a RAW or PSD file. So uh, just the easiest example to see it is try doing some highlight recovery, right? Take mm-hmm. your, your basically exposed image where you, you know that there's probably some more detail hiding in there. You know, the, the clouds could have a little more there. By default, it's just white, but you're going to be able to recover them. Open a PSD without any adjustments and save that PSD. Now, go back to your original image and do the recovery. Drag your highlight slider all the way down to recover and do that to your PSD as well. And you're going to see that the PSD is not able to recover anywhere near the amount of dynamic range that the raw file is. It's, it's really big. Right. So you're, you're not doing the same thing by creating a high-quality high PSD. You are baking in a lot of parameters, even if you're not editing it strongly, even if you're just kind of correcting it. Uh, same with the white balance. You can't do those same white balance corrections to a, a TIFF or PSD. It's, it is very much baked in, even though the image quality is very high. Yeah, you can, like, you know, for the record, you can make corrections, but you cannot take it as far as you could with a, with a raw file and expect to, not to have an adverse effect. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. It's really worth playing around with. Like, you got to get a feeling for what you can and can't do with the PST. It's, it's not easy to describe, so... It's interesting. I've never even worked in PSD, to be honest with you. Oh. I, I work in TIFF all the time. Oh, okay. It re- I mean, honestly, it's it's basically the same. I just found I don't like the TIFF save screen, and I kind of think they get a bit bigger. I don't know. I I think I did the research once, and what I was seeing is like, you know, it's basically the same. <laughs> so I just I don't worry about it too much. If anybody's curious, so TIFF and PSDs are, they're called lossless files which is um, if you care about the quality of your work, it's, it's how you should be working on them. Uh, you definitely do not want to do this type of heavy lifting in JPEG unless you absolutely have no choice. Yeah. A JPEG is called a lossy file, and it's an odd word, but it means exactly what it sounds like it means. You, know, you make quality. these changes and you lose them. Well, it's funny because you say a PSD is lossless, and, and we do. Like that's, what, that's how we refer to them. But based on what I just said, they actually, they are lossy as well compared to a raw file. You, you are still throwing away data, which is, which is interesting. But I, technically what it's saying about it, though, is that each time you save it, you're not recompressing. It's saving all of the data and not applying a compression layer on top of it. Yeah, that's right. It's all, it's all very I just straightforward. heard the sound of a million brains exploding. <laughs> um. All right. Well, let's maybe let's go back to the beginning a little bit. Let's walk it through. I'll I'll maybe just start with how I do things. I I have problems. This is actually bad for me being somebody that tries to teach other people occasionally. Like I try to explain how other people can do a better job with their image workflows, but mine is pretty weird in that like it's I don't think it's very common the way that I am editing and it's because I, I have this dual workflow that is with my wife and on her computer and she does a bunch of the steps. I still haven't found anybody else that works like we do, which is hard for me because it makes it hard for me to develop. Like I don't have anybody to talk to about developing this workflow. Um, so first I'll just kind of describe like roughly what we do, um, but hopefully mostly in terms of things that are applicable to you guys because you could just have one person doing this. It just adds some complications for me. So uh, basically, uh, I'm always shooting to two memory cards. I finally really got into that habit. I used to only do it occasionally, but now I'll usually have the second card set to JPEG. So my backup files are just large JPEGs with minimal compression, but that's typically would be good enough in an emergency. Um, if it's a really important job, I will set both files to raw, but it's it's hard to have enough cards to be shooting two sets of raw images all the time. I just, I start falling behind and then I find if I don't have enough cards, then all of a sudden I don't have any backups, right? Like if I filled up two 64 gigabyte cards on a job and all of a sudden I don't have another two, I only have one more, then the next one isn't getting backed up. So I save JPEGs, I'll, I'll use that backup JPEG card for a number of shoots in a row. And then once I know the files are kind of just safe, I'd eventually just go back and delete it. So I take that SD card and actually uh, I started using SD as my primary card thanks to you 
uh, when yeah. you just, I was like, I, I, yeah, I complained about something. I was like, ah, oh, why are compact flashcards more expensive or something? And you're like, why aren't you just using SD cards as your primaries? And the reason was because on the 5D Mark III, it was much slower on SD. There, it was like a problem. SD cards were not oh. very fast. Um, yeah, Weird. Yeah, you could feel it. Um, and I didn't really know that it had gotten better on the Mark IV until you said that. I kind of shot with it more and realized, wow, this is substantially faster and, and very usable. And you don't notice a difference between them anymore. Uh, you you do notice yeah. a slowdown because you're shooting to two cards. It's, it is slightly slower, but it's acceptable. So I live with that. Well, you, you definitely notice a difference in handling them. Handling the two cameras or? The cards. Oh, right. Because the, the CF cards are big and clunky, and I feel like they're less secure. I break, I I break a lot of SD cards. Uh, oh, really? <laughs> yeah, both, basically. Wow. I, I, I just kind of go through cards. And I think it's because I, uh, like we've talked about before, that I shoot too much. I have too much volume. And I think it's the going in and out of cameras and card readers too often that I wear them down faster than they should. Yeah, no, no question. And uh, I mean, I do too. And I, I definitely see that the cards start to get worn. And when I think that that's when I start to consider replacing them is when they look like they're like that, that they've been used too much, because then I'm starting to get nervous on more important jobs, you know, using them because I'm like, I don't know, maybe this one is is closer to its expiry, right? So I might start using a new yeah. one. The thing that I have never experienced with SD that I that I had a problem with with S or CF is uh the 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 DIN pins um I would bend them mm-hmm. on accident putting the cards in. 100% then, of mine are broken <laughs> gradually. They do. the funny thing is they all just break off for me eventually and then the card keeps working. It never stops working, so why are they even there? That's so weird. <laughs> Uh, that seems like it's not supposed to happen. Yeah, no, it's very but, weird. But if you look at the new Sony Tough Cards, and I was telling myself, I'm like, oh, the next time I buy cards, I'm going to buy these. Then it came time to buy new cards, and I was like, ah, they're too expensive. So I, I didn't buy them, but I w- hopefully will. Sony has released these Tough SD cards that are apparently indestructible-ish. They're waterproof and scratch-proof and just supposed to last a lot longer, and they're really fast. They're 300 megabits, bytes per second. And it's uh, they seem fantastic. Like they seem like the ultimate, but they don't have those pins at all. So there's nothing to break. But I don't understand why they're ever there if you can just remove them. That's that doesn't make any sense. Yeah. All right, and then and then what? Uh, so far, are we on similar pages? Do, are you, do you use dual SD cards? Do you have a CF card? I don't remember what your camera looks like. I don't know what Nikon's are. Yeah, I only use SD cards these days. Right. I like I said, you know, I was breaking those pins or whatever, and just got frustrated with my readers and whatnot. Because you know, and that, we actually had this on this conversation on your other podcast, where you know, because I I love putting the SD card in the Mac, <laughs> um, you know, like it's it's alleviated the need for an outboard card reader well, yeah, for years because you still have a card reader, lucky guy. And now I'm I'm fretting upgrading, but yeah, I've I've been really pleased with SD cards, and I only rarely actually use two. I just don't have it. I've knock on wood, I haven't had enough uh, screw ups to really be worried about it. Yeah, well, that's like yeah, lucky you. <laughs> um, yeah, I find them to be really reliable, actually. Yeah, which brand do you typically buy? Um, I will tell you. Hold on. I, I have had all of them break, by the way. So whatever you tell me, I'll tell you I broke it. But uh, you know, I've I've broken ProGrade, Lexar, and SanDisk. And um, okay, so I'm not loyal to them. The, the the specific ones I use are the SanDisk Extreme Pro, and that's I use the uh, 64 gigabyte, 95 megabyte per second. Oh, 95. And, because, yeah. uh, you know, there's 150 out there too. Sweet. So if you were doing video, that would be better? No, I actually, I find it more important for photo. I find, I notice the slowdown more in bursts and then also downloading. Fascinating. I actually noticed that That's, today. I, it's for photography that I want the faster. That's what makes me willing to spend more. Are you shooting a lot of bursts? Yeah. Yeah, I shoot bursts a lot. I don't think that I do it very often. It's, you know, usually my subjects are inanimate. Mm. 
so it's not that big of a deal. But when I'm shooting, <laughs> yeah, burst mode, uh, burst mode on food, uh, be a little weird. It'll be weird, right? <laughs> the editing would really suck. <laughs> was he pouring something? I guess. But, uh, but today, I, I actually I was shooting a dancer, and so um, I you know, burst mode was absolutely crucial. And you know, I was shooting with the with my D800, and I I definitely which oh my god, the slowest burst ever, but. On top of that, the speed in which it processes those files is also very slow, well, compared to today's standard. You know? So there was just many moments where I was like, waiting. Oh, I waiting. hate that feeling. Yeah, it's awful. I wanted to, just when you briefly in passing mentioned the other podcast, uh, I do want to mention, because mm-hmm. I don't know if everybody listening to the show is aware, there is another podcast. Uh, you might just be <laughs> thinking that this just stopped and uh, now there's nothing to listen to anymore. But uh, I have been doing the Stallman podcast pr- uh, pretty much every week for the last year. And that's part of the reason that there's there's less of these is that shows just, it's a bit broader. Um, there's just more like different things that... I've been talking about on it and a camera comes on there too. And we talk about cameras, but, um, I just, I don't, I don't have a lot of bandwidth to do more shows. I'd love to do both of them full time, but well, I, I don't end up having time, but you don't have to take all the blame. Uh, you also don't have to wait around for me very much, which is probably also makes it a little easier. Well, yeah, there's, there's, there's no blaming to go around here, but, uh, the, the point is, even though this show still trickles out, there is another show if you want to listen to it. So, yeah, StallmanPodcast.com. But yep, very recommended. Uh, okay, what do we do next? We've shot the photos. They are on memory cards. We download them. Uh, the way I download them, so fortunately, I actually still get to use a card reader on my wife's MacBook Pro, which I, I always appreciate. <laughs> she has the older 20, what, 2015 model, I think, 2015? Yeah, because 2016 is when it was updated. And... That makes things a little easier. I don't like having to plug in my USB dongle when I'm downloading to my newer MacBook Pro. Um, do you do the backup while you download or do you do it after? That's a really interesting question. Um, I don't do it consciously because I just have my, all my backups going in the background automatically. So you do a single download. And then, yeah. like later, a scheduled backup runs, and that just like sucks the folder over to your backup drive. Yes, several. Yeah, <laughs> I do uh, on site and off site. That sounds nice. See, my big problem, yeah. my other big complication that makes me have a hard time giving good advice is that uh, our workflow is also very. It revolves around travel a lot, so we need to everything that's a permanent solution for us needs to be mobile this means that yeah we're using like complicated portable usb drives basically i always have two of them and i will download to one and then sync them to the other and then when those fill up usually at the end of the year we buy another set of two drives fill them keep them mirrored and then buy another set at the end of next year. Uh, the logical thing that people give me advice on, because I, I made a YouTube video explaining this, and a lot of the responses, they're like, well, why aren't you just backing them up to a NAS instead of keeping the individual drives that's so hard to organize and wasteful of drives? And it totally is. It's a pain. But it's it takes a long time to manage moving the photos off of the primary drive and onto a NAS, especially if you're going to try to track them through Lightroom. So Mm -hmm. if you grab a bunch of folders in Lightroom and drag them, they'll all start copying as separate processes. Each one is is different. If any of them get interrupted, they will completely lose their place and they can't be resumed. So now you have to go back and find the differences between all those drives, like find all the ones that didn't finish and manually, one folder at a time, move the images from that folder to the other drive. And it, I, I've been bitten by that. If you try to do it in bulk, something will probably go wrong because it takes so long, and then there's no way to automatically fix it. Ugh. Yeah, it's really ugly. And so the other thing is that like, my NAS is full anyway, so I'm, I, I don't know. I'd have to go buy a new one, and then that's spending over $2,000. To get one that's big enough to be worth it, I'd, I'd definitely be spending more than two. Wait a minute. Yeah. How is your NAS full? Because it has, I don't know, it has about like six years of photos, and that filled it, and videos. Wait, so, so you have the largest possible drives in your NAS, and they're all full? You no, know, I could buy bigger drives. 
But then, ah, see, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I, so the thing is, though, if I buy all the largest possible drives for my four bay Synology, yeah, the, uh, that would still only back up my photos to something like 2016. Oh my god! You know, I still wouldn't be caught up to now. So it's like, okay, great. I go spend another thousand dollars, and now this drive still isn't current. So I'm still in my habit of you know, uh, having the, the dual extra drives. And then, so then do I add another Synology to my shopping list or do I go out and buy an eight bay all with 10 terabyte drives in it, which w- would be very expensive. And then, you know, start from now. Anyway, I basically, I just don't want to spend the money. So I'm just not doing any, I'm just doing it the way I have been, even though there's problems with it. Uh, disclaimer, <laughs> this is not normal. <laughs> yeah. This isn't what you guys don't have to worry about this, uh, which is, is great. Most I, of you shouldn't. Totally. Yeah. yeah. It, the, the simple problem is just not being able to access a computer that's sitting in the same place all the time. Uh, th- it, that makes a huge difference. So, well, that's, what's so good to hear or why it's so good to hear your story though, because for anybody that's considering or even maybe even entering into a similar type of a professional lifestyle, I mean, that, that's, that's quite the hill to climb. So if you have something that you can model you know, to make it a little easier, then that would be fantastic. Because yeah. I imagine that just starting, especially if you had like a, a sudden rise, it could get really troublesome mm-hmm. really quickly. You know, like if you weren't taking care of the, your legacy in a smart way, and safe way, then you know it, it could be flashing before your eyes when you don't even realize what the value of it is yet. Yep, that's it's intense. Still, what's happening to me? That's <laughs> uh, how I feel every day. Cautionary tale. So, what do you do since you're you're in a more typical situation as far as computer setup goes? Yeah, pretty much. Uh, I think that the big thing that's changed in my world is that my wife is now a full time shooter for the business that we run. And oh, okay. I didn't realize her volume of shooting had substantially gone up. Oh, yeah. I mean, she shoots more than I do now, wow, okay. which is really weird, but great. I mean, she's actually, I mean, she is a one-trick pony. That's her definition of herself. But uh, she only shoots food, and she does it in fairly controlled environment. And once you take her out of that environment, she does not know what to do with her camera. Even though in that environment, she knows exactly all the moves that she needs to make to fix what she needs to fix. Uh, It's an interesting situation. Like I think that because she learned in such a controlled environment with inanimate subjects that were reliably, I guess the situation was reliable enough, uh, she she hasn't had to do the same level of problem solving that most of us do. Um, You know, but on the other hand, like the, the... consistency and quality of the work that she's doing is is remarkable for somebody that's only in their second year of uh, even semi-pro to pro shooting. That's awesome. It's pretty amazing, yeah, actually. Great for you guys to be able to do um, that together. Yeah. So what, you know, now what we're doing, she doesn't, I mean, she can do uh, some, some light uh, processing, but she prefers not to do it because uh, she just still feels that, that I'm, I have a better eye for it. So now what we're doing is a bit complicated because she um, uploads the photos to her computer and then she does the, the selecting, uh, which I think is also just a, you know, I have to tip my hat to her on that one because that's my, my professional job is editing, uh, making the sele- image selections from shoots. And so, you know, the fact that she does that for most of our work and that I see that and go like, oh my God, it's great. Uh, that's, that's really big deal, I think. And, uh, you know, so I give her a lot of credit for that. But so she does all the, you know, what I, I would call the hard work, uh, you know, because she might shoot anywhere from 100 to two to 300 in a, depending on what the, you know, whatever it is that she's shooting. And what by the time I see it, I'm only seeing 15 to 25 images tops. And mm. it, it's just like, it's very nice. Yeah. And they're all in focus and they're all <laughs> nicely composed and everything. So yeah, just a little... Uh, side note, but um, so what she does there, it, um, or then, is that she exports all the RAWs to a shared Dropbox file, and then I go and grab them and upload them to my computer, and then we're both making backups. So I mean, it's it's completely unnecessary and redundant, but but we're both doing that. So what 
we both do from there is that all of the files that we shoot, all the photos that we shoot, uh, go to external hard drives, and we update our our externals. Um, well, we at least we update our catalog every year. And the the current theory is that for each drive that we have, you know, it will last about two years. We I tend to partition them. So if we buy a, you know, like for hers, we what we just did is I bought her a four terabyte external hard drive and partitioned it right down the middle, and then so she has uh, one half for this year and then one half for next year, um, and that's what I do on my side as well. And then all of those then get backed up to our NAS. And then they also get backed up. Well, not hers, but everything on mine gets backed up to uh, Backblaze as well. Okay. Well, and to clarify, your what are you doing with your catalogs at those each year? You're, cre- you're creating a new catalog mm-hmm. and saving it to – you store it with the backup drive. It's not stored on your local. Yes, that's right. Okay. Yeah. Each each catalog is is separated from every year, and then it's it's saved along with those uh, those files on that same drive. Yeah, I gotta take a second to address anybody out there that's still splitting their catalogs into project by project. I don't know how that room, that idea got spread around that this was how you should be using Lightroom. But this is this is not how Lightroom works. This is Lightroom it's was terrible. never intended to be split into separate projects. Like it, it, that is a huge waste of your time. You are you should not be using the app. Then basically, like the only way that could make sense to me is that if each project is for a different client, and then you're packaging up the whole catalog and delivering it to the client. I could see that yep. being a thing. That 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 makes sense. That's actually an amazing example because I probably would not have been able to come up with one. But, but that's a great one. There's nothing else. I no. mean, if if you're storing your photos long term, each catalog can handle hundreds of thousands. I think there's a point where it starts to slow down. It's hard to really be sure. Everybody I've seen talk about this is guessing. I'm guessing too because I've had Lightroom run slowly, and then I created a new catalog, and I think it started working faster. Um, but I don't really know where that limit is, but it's really high. It's much, a lot of people are like, oh, I shoot so many photos. I had 6,000 photos in that catalog. So I had to create new ones. Like, (laughs) dude, like you don't know what a lot of photos is. Like you can literally have a quarter million photos in a catalog and it's still working fine. So, you know, that's, so yeah, I, I, I've been doing the same thing of splitting by year and actually part of the reason I started splitting is there's a different issue with catalogs I've been running into only on Anya's computer. My, my computer for some reason isn't doing this, but it'll start to, you know how on the left it shows each drive in its own little drop down, right? Yeah. Like there's a little box for the drive in a different font and it says, you know, 2019 photos. You open and close that and it's just there for the drive. Mine started to or on hers, it started to nest everything. So it'll say like volumes, Anya's computer, 2019, right? Like everything is getting, starts getting buried down into the nest. Um, You don't really need to picture this accurately if I'm describing it poorly, it's okay. It just starts to lose that structure um, and it is it is much harder to navigate and looks bad. And I don't, I don't know why that keeps happening, but um, that's part of the reason I've been splitting into New Year's. But even creating a new catalog each year, I find to be hard to stay organized because at the point of crossover, like we actually don't have a new one for 2019 yet. When the year rolls over, I find it really hard to remember to keep relaunching each catalog as you work on different projects. Mm-hmm. And then I start to import things. Once you've imported two or three shot shoots into the wrong year in the wrong catalog all of a sudden you're like oh god like, why did i bother now you, you have to spend another 20 minutes correcting it it's um it's really annoying well and if you have a lot of them it could be a disaster because yeah. then you could you know forget where you put it and then even maybe convince yourself that maybe you lost it yeah and maybe I, you deleted I, it i've somehow. temporarily lost stuff like that i totally have um so yeah, if you yeah, can. That is not a mistake you want to yeah, make. Yeah, if you can, try to stay in one Lightroom catalog, keep it local to your computer, and put the backup somewhere else. If you shoot a lot, maybe split them every year, and but stay organized. I, I might stop splitting them by year. Um, I don't know. I, I have a bit of an issue with my... I don't know what I want to do for my long-term archive. Sometimes I get tempted to create 
more of like one working catalog and one archive catalog. So everything that I'm done with, maybe I would just write the metadata to the files. Don't even worry about exporting them out of exporting a catalog because it's very time consuming. You, know, you can kind of make mistakes. Just like save metadata locally to all the files so that it's stored either within the DNGs or in sidecar files to the CR2s. And then you're saving all the ratings that you set, all the presets. It, it all gets baked in, or not baked in, it gets the metadata is stored. And then re import those into an archive catalog, delete them from the working one. Mm-hmm. That's what I'm thinking about doing. I haven't started doing that yet. But now within your catalog, I think this is, seems like a decent way to go with this. Um, within that, within your yearly catalog, how are you separating your folders? What is your folder system? It's like? it's day, just day by day, like the name of you know 2019-09-15. I've always done that. I've tried that in previous years, and uh, or something similar to that at least, and I found that it became too hard to find specific things um, unless you're really good about using keywords all the time for everything you upload. I, I do keyword in Lightroom for things for the final images that I end up exporting, but I don't do it for everything, right? So like it it I can't rely on keywords to find what I'm looking for. Yeah, if you were perfect, that's the idea, right? You're supposed to just be perfect with key, keywords and then you always find them. Um, and by the way, I recommended a second ago this idea of saving the metadata and then re-importing it. You do lose some things and Mm, off the top of my head, I don't remember exactly which ones they are. They might include keywords. They definitely include collections. You you lose track of that for sure. I think it probably does store keywords. But take a look into it. Before you do what I just talked about, make sure you're willing to lose some of that data because you will. Uh, just a little warning for anybody thinking about it. Um, uh, yeah, I don't keyword consistently at all, at all anymore. I actually keyword very little. Um, I basically just find projects by by going back and looking. Uh, a little bit of it is that I, if we keep moving forward in the workflow, after I'm done all of the editing, I guess that skips some steps, so we will have to go back. Okay, so after I'm done all the editing, I export JPEGs, uh, very large, high, uh, minimal compression JPEGs to Dropbox, and that kind of becomes the place that the final images live. And if we need to reuse them, like put them in our portfolio, send them back to the client, whatever, the JPEGs and Dropbox are what we usually refer back to, but they're never getting modified because they're done. They just are big JPEGs just sitting there. So if I need to find the file in my Lightroom catalog first, I go looking in uh, you know Dropbox 2018 client name. There's a folder for that client. So I, I can easily find it. That is organized by the name of the shoot. And inside of that, I can see all the file names and those link back to whatever it is in Lightroom. So it, it doesn't take that long for me to reference it in Dropbox, then go find it in Lightroom. Okay, cool. Yeah, I think that that was the point that I was looking to get to there. It's just like, how do you organize everything so that if you need it now, like if you need it quickly, uh, you're able to get it. You know, like I, I think that, like I'm at a point now where time is limited and I have, you know, prob- I, I'm just guesstimating probably between five and 10 like yearly consistent clients. Um, and maybe one turns over and I pick up a new one, right? But I don't really have a lot of room for, for more than that. Um, and so the way that I separate my folders is that I separate them by, I guess, how you would define my business so I have the the Cameron Whitman photography folder, which is any kind of uh, freelance editing, or I'm sorry, uh, events, portraits, uh, anything where people are paying me specifically. And then I also have um, one for Our Salty Kitchen, which is uh, Daniel and I's blog, um, which is also, you know, the, the blog images plus stock. Uh, and, and sometimes, you know, usually after I, we export those, I don't need them. Uh, so it's it's not that big of a deal. But with the, the client stuff, you never know, right? Let's, sometimes um, a year down the road, somebody would be like, hey, I need this one file. You know, and they have, you know, they have some, you know, uh, file number and it's just random and maybe they don't even have a reference. And like, how are you going to quickly find that, you know? Um, if you do have the file number, you could just do a quick search and, uh Using the file number in Lightroom, but if you know if it was just maybe a visual reference with a no number, 
then how would you find it? That's you know, something like, I've in, learned in, over with, the years. In a actually. way that's not going to take you a, an afternoon. Yeah, for right? sure. Because who has an afternoon? It's something I learned a long time ago was not to name. Uh, so it can be tempting, and people do this, to rename all of your photos when you export them to something custom for the client so that it you know it feels like they're theirs and then the client can organize them well. So you name them client name, shoot name, date, your name, something like that. This can really cause you headaches if they send that back to you and say, like, do you have any other photos similar to this one? And there is no clear record of the original file ID. And yeah, like you were saying, Cameron, trying to go back and track down that photo and see exactly where it was in the shoot can become a real pain in the ass. So I like to I like to just give everything its original, uh, you know, the, the basically the camera generated ID for the photo, which uh, I, I should mention that's part of the importing process as well is that I like to rename everything as it comes in to add the date because otherwise you'll end up with duplicates because your camera rolls over file names and gradually you'll start getting multiple images called IMG underscore one, two, three, four. And so when you search for that, a bunch of things come up. So it's really helpful to add that that unique identifier of a date. For me, I just let Lightroom does it. This is an option in the import dialog and it just prepends the date to the file name. That's awesome advice. Glad I could offer something. Something useful might come of this, after all. It won't all be time something wasted. Something that's not a total disaster. Yeah, yeah. One, one thing that I do that actually works. This, just, this conversation reminds me of when I was just getting my feet wet as a photographer and trying, you know, with the, the glossy-eyed you know, ambitions of becoming a pro. And I had this one teacher that told me, Something along the lines of like, if you're successful, like you'll be so busy that you'll you will not have time to manage your life, and like the, I think what he also might have mentioned was that there's no really in between. Like that's just how it is. Like if you're a, a successful photographer, that means that you do not have a life. <laughs> Does that mean you're finally successful? Yeah, <laughs> you made yeah, it. I made it, I, and it's one of those things where you look look at your life and kind of go like. Well, I guess it's a good thing I like what I do. <laughs> yeah. Um, what did we miss, though? I feel like I we were, I mean, we didn't write any notes. This is this is the problems with the cameras or whatever podcast is the lack of planning. But what stage did we get to thoroughly? I, I know we didn't talk about any image editing. Well, we didn't talk about the NAS really. I mean, we've mentioned it, but what is it? What w- what is a NAS? Yeah. Well, it's a series of hard drives that are put together in a little box, and that box is a simple computer. So it it is a real computer, full computer, but you don't access it in the same way you would a Windows or Linux computer, even though it probably typically is a Linux box. You see a simplified interface that lets you access all of those hard drives as if they are one hard drive. And the difference between a RAID and a NAS is basically that uh, NAS is a network-attached storage, and that just means you're able to access it from more than one computer, whereas a RAID isn't necessarily configured like that. A RAID might only be, say, available through USB, so you plug it into one computer, and uh, whereas a NAS is basically a RAID that is attached to your network. Mm. So... Um, yeah, I use a, a Synology, which is plugged into my modem slash router, which in my case are the same, across the room. And then I have an Ethernet cable running over to my iMac that lets me have pretty speedy connection to it. And it works great. And I have the exact same thing. So thank you for, for explaining, because I think you did a better job than I was going to. <laughs> All right. Um, so no corrections? And I guess in, in just in case anybody's wondering... Um, you know, like you already mentioned that all of yours are full. <laughs> um, I have had to, I think that since I, I have a five bay instead of a four bay. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that I've, and I'm not even sure, I think that mine are all like four terabyte each. But I've only had to update, I think twice, uh, two drives, uh, one for failure and one because it was slightly smaller than all the other ones and I needed to to get a bigger one. And yeah, it's been super reliable. I think that the one thing that I find frustrating is the software is a little bit 
more robust and maybe not as intuitive as I think it should be. Are you, did you get a Synology? I don't remember what you were using. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, so one, which I'll just add one thing you should really look for if you're buying one is that they are hot swappable. So what you were just saying that, yeah, you were able to pull out a smaller drive, put in a bigger one. That's a feature that Synology has. And I think QNAP NAS drives also have that. I haven't bought one, but... Uh, that you're able to just pull it out and put in a bigger one and it will rebuild that new drive and, and just integrate it into the rest of them. Simpler NAS options or RAID options don't necessarily allow that. So just uh, be sure that you can if you uh, want the want the easy option. And you do. Yeah, you really do. Unless you already, in my opinion, if you want yeah. the hard option, then you're already doing it yourself. You, you don't need us to explain any of this. Yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> Let's let's talk a little bit about editing for us. So we have everything in Lightroom organized by some kind of folders, and now we want to select images. I feel like we talked. I've talked about this in quite a bit of detail in a few places, so I don't want to go into extreme detail on it because there's a lot to say. But basically, I like to keep the meaning of a rating the same forever. So if you put one star on an image, that always means the same thing in 2014 or 2019. Mm-hmm. And typically photos will range, we'll, we'll use the full range from one through five stars. We don't use the pick flags. We only use the rejection flags. And basically we'll go through the whole day choosing everything that we'll, we'll put it somewhere between one and three stars or rejected if it's bad. And, and we'll go through the whole folder like that. Honestly, most of the time it's Anya. She, that's a lot of what she does. So I do less of this lately. And everything that is rejected will get deleted at the end. But I, I don't like to delete it right away because I might need to, say, pull something out of a rejected image for Photoshop or um, I don't know. There, there, there are – you just wait. Hold on. <laughs> delete them as late as possible into the process. Everything is rated one to three, and it's like, okay, I kind of have a sense of here are the ones that are roughly usable. These ones are okay, but they're probably not going to get used. And then I use, or she uses four and fives to boost the use the images that we will use to the top of the pile. What I'd recommend other people do that we haven't been able to stick to the habit of is reserve five for portfolio picks. Like five is... Something, it means something to sort your whole catalog by five stars so that all the five stars are great, like some of your best photos. Uh, we just kind of broke that habit, and it, it's not organizable that way. But it's it's really helpful to have a long-term strategy that makes sense forever. And then other little bits of that are we use red, which is the uh, you press the number six for red. That means that the image has been fully edited, and it is completely done and, and ready to be ready to be used. That's what red means. And yellow is, there's something exceptional about it. Those are the only two colors we really use. So yellows are uh, either like it was flagged red as being done and now we need to flag it for further editing. Or uh, sometimes it's like, oh, this one is going to be used in a composite. It's just kind of like an an additional, you know, take a look at this. And uh, yeah, what do you do? That is so good. I just... Uh, bravo. <laughs> I'm really impressed with that. Oh, thanks. I mean, it, in practice, it, it goes more poorly sometimes, but... Sure. Um, well, and I think that in any anything like that, you're maybe not going to use it as accurately as, as you desire to. But that's, you know, if you have a system that you have memorized, it sure does make it a lot easier to, to stay on target. That's the I goal. Guess. I, you know, I think that mine is is a lot less complicated because I shoot a lot less photos, and they're you know my shoots tend to be a little more. I don't even know how to how to describe it. Um, yeah, it's just so much smaller that I think it's just not as a much as big of a challenge for me. So I think that mine is a little bit more simple, and I am now using uh, the Loop Deck Plus that I think I mentioned in the other podcast. You did, yeah, and it's it's starting to you know, become more of an intuitive thing to me now. Like I'm now that I know where things are, it's definitely making this process nicer. And uh, the specific things that I needed it to be, or that I wanted this thing for was for the big shoots, like the events, the weddings, stuff like that. Um, Not that I do weddings that often, but 
when you do, you, it's just nice to have something that makes the the process of it a little bit more enjoyable. That said, I think that the uh, the keyboard and mouse are still really usable and powerful tools, uh, obviously. But the loop deck just makes it a little bit more of an um, immersive experience, I think. Um, I was talking to my wife about it, and I said that you know sometimes you know now that I'm starting to use it a little bit, I think I would say better. Um, it starts it's starting to feel like mixing a like mixing mixing a song, you know, like you're 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 playing with all the knobs and stuff, and it just has this kind of flow to it that is that is pretty nice. Uh, one of the things that I would caution is to not have a, a slow computer because <laughs> uh, Lightroom is already tends to have some issues and so the loop deck can have a little bit of a delay if if your computer's not super fast in most cases i haven't had too much trouble but with the with the bigger files um like the d800 files you can start to see where it lags a bit and that can kind of take away from the joy of having that more instantaneous uh, result with the turn of a knob and it definitely uh feels nicer to use it when you're uh changing you know when you're especially when you're doing the the things that that have the knobs like the um highlights shadows whites blacks clarity that kind of thing the hue saturation illuminance all those things are really nice when when using this thing but now okay so now down to the selects um this uh this actually works perfectly for the way that I do it which you know means that you know, I, I'm a lot more simple. So um, when I'm using the the arrow keys are exactly the same on the loop deck as they would be on your keyboard. Uh, so that's nice and convenient. But then uh, I have always used just a pick or a fl- I guess a flag or unflag or pick or unpick system uh, for my first go. Pick everything that I want to take another look at and, or uh, reject everything that I don't want. And the great thing about the loop deck is that it has it just has a the the controls for that. I guess they're pro, all programmable, but I'm still too new for me. Uh, but you could just use there's a C1 and C2. So C1, you if you press it once, it picks it. If you press it twice, it unpicks it. And C2, the same thing with with rejecting or unrejecting. And you know, I'm just finding that this is it just the flow of it is really nice because the 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 where your hands sit. Uh, for using the P on the on the keyboard is just a little bit not it's just not as as, as comfortable. So I'm I'm you know I'm still early in this, but I I think it's a little bit faster for actually making the selections, which is I cool. like the idea of it. I mean, it feels like it should be faster. I only tested it for about forty eight hours and didn't love it. I st- I still loved the idea of it after I stopped using it, but uh, I maybe I just didn't spend long enough to get into the flow. No, but. I don't think so. Um, to be to be completely honest with you, like the first forty eight hours, I was like, "This is a mistake." I, I can still tell though; it's not ideal for certain types of photo. Like, it is still good for sort of batching, but when you're really precisely editing one photo, there's certain things that, for example, cropping. It it goes in stages. So as you're twisting the crop, it's jumping by one point each time. Whereas if you use your mouse, mm-hmm. you can go by like 0.01 point. So it, you yeah. can have much more fine aggressive. grain adjustments with the mouse. And um, yeah. Yeah, that's right. And, and you know, I, I would I would say that for me, I think that the way that this becomes a useful tool is in conjunction with the other tools on my desk. You know, like I would never just use the loop deck for sure. There's just no way. There's certain things that are just so much faster especially with the adjustment tools, yep. you know, like I, the adjustment tools work way better with a mouse and also the tone curve is something that, that is just way too delicate to be even right. attempted with this thing. Yeah, for sure. So, okay. So what do I do after I pick them? If I'm working with a client, then typically what I would do is I, I take the picks, right. And then I export them to a gallery for the client to then make their selections and then when I get that list back, then I that's when I star all of those ones and I give it one star. I stopped using other stars a long time ago. Uh, the only time that I ever end up using them is if it's a really big job and I need to, to separate their selects by the section of shoot. So, you know, if there's 10 sections, then 
I would have the five stars plus then the colors. And each one of those things would represent which which part of that shoot that I was actually working in. Yeah, and that's pretty much it. That's that's the extent of mine. And I have to just say that like the way that you do it sounds so much better. <laughs> well, I also and can't take I, credit for the way that I did it. It was developed by like I read a book that told me to do it this way, and then I did, and it worked very well. And that book is called The Damn Book by Peter Crow. Yeah, uh, which is a book I own, and I never even yeah you know, like I I have read mo- parts of it, but yeah, it's big, and there's a lot to 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 take in but yeah i also recommend it but i have not i have not gone through it like it's my holy book i really want to get him on the other podcast sometime um i don't have any connection to him but he'd be great to talk to i think he's going to do a you new book you should have him on this one well yeah you know, i'll have him all over the place i'd love to i could talk to him for hours so um yeah I'll, I'll talk a little bit about my editing as well the so i've at this point, I, I don't use the VSEO or Mastin Labs that we've talked about previously very often. Sometimes I'll kind of just go back and dabble through them to find some fun options. But I sort of branched off and just kind of use some of my own presets now for pretty much everything. And I think I already covered the fact that I will, in a large batch, like an event, I will apply the same preset to everything in there on the raw file. And if it's more specific photos, I'll be adding them to the PSDs. I I do still like to separate the two kinds of editing, though, because even, even if you are doing it all in one step, you, you do all the adjustments on the raw file, it is mentally very different to be correcting an image and to be filtering it, you know, giving it a look. Because you'll actually see this split out in when you're doing video work, like in grading, you'll use what are called nodes. It's kind of like layers in Photoshop, and those will split the process like for you. You'll be forced to first just correct the image, then go back, and uh, on top of that, you add a look. But they're always separated, so you can always identify these are the corrections and these are the look things. This is part of what I don't like about how Lightroom works by default is that it's all baked in there together. So if you just apply a VSCO preset or even worse is a lot of like independent creators, uh, you know, people like me. I mean, not that I, I won't ever sell a, a preset. Maybe I would someday, but there is a art to de- designing them in a way that's really useful for as many people as possible because if they're structured incorrectly, they need a lot more manual tweaking on different photos and just don't work as well as you'd like. So that's why I I do like carefully created presets by people that know what they're doing. And again, Mastin Labs, Visco both do a great job of this. But you first learn how to make an image just look right. Like make, make it look correct, accurate, you know, the, the the white balance is where it should be, exposure is where it should be. Um, you've recovered the highlights and shadows to the correct amount. That stuff is more important than applying a filter. And if you just apply a preset as your first step, you may not be able to see some of those differences. So I, I really strongly recommend at least mentally separating those two stages so that you know know the difference and are able to do both of them comfortably. That's great advice. I think I've gotten lazy. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, sometimes when I'm working, the more quickly I need to work, like I say with batches, the less I really uh, practice that. Um, uh, It's more when uh, every image has to be pretty perfect. That's when I'm much more careful about it. Gotcha. I have created several of my own uh, presets as well. And uh, I I have one for food that we use pretty consistently now. Um, and then I have a couple other fun ones and I have a couple black and white ones. And I also have a couple black and white ones that I got from my friend Dylan Howell that he created. Uh, they are really super contrasty and, um, very grainy. Um, and they're awesome. <laughs> cool. They're really, really cool. So sometimes the, you know, the, these wedding shooters that are, uh, creating their own, uh, are pretty crafty folks and he's one of them. So if you're curious, I think that he, he, I can't, I wish I, I shouldn't have mentioned it without knowing where to, 
<laughs> to point you. But if I can, if I can figure that out, then uh, well, you've we got time after we finish recording, so I can put it in the show notes. Right. Okay. So anyway, he's he had a couple that I thought were really super cool, and I definitely recommend them. If you like a really, um, a really hard contrast that still looks good. Cool. But yeah, and and I also I have I think I've saved I maybe five uh, different presets that I that I love from VSEO and I still use them when when I need something that else is just not working um, and they come through in the clutch sometimes and I for one you know I've ta- I've, I think I've also talked plenty of trash about VSEO over the years but uh, I have to say that I was I was for one disappointed when I heard that they were gonna stop mm-hmm. yeah that yep. was that, I thought that was a, a loss to the yeah, community. I think the negative effect that they have had was other people's faults more than their own. You know, I think it was people using the most extreme Visco presets out there uh, too much. <laughs> um, and just the fact that VSC was like, oh, let's make something that looks like instant film. I don't really blame them for that because, you know, a lot of their more classy colors uh, were very well designed and, and still look nice today. They do. Yeah. All right. Well, I feel like I covered m- most of it. Do you have anything to add? Mm, no, I think that, that we did cover everything, that, at least what, we've, what we're doing. Yeah, I mean, definitely not. There, there is more. There is always more. But those are the basics. I, I hope to some there's point— There's more and different, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Big. I mean, even we—you can hear the difference in how we do things. And for listeners out there, I'm sure you do things differently as well. And different is fine. It is. Cameron, where can people find you? Uh, I can be found on, on Twitter at uh, Camrocker, and I can be found on Instagram at Camelog or Camerun, which is spelled K-A-M-M-E-R-U-N. Cool. And you can find me at Stallman, most places, and Stallman Podcast for the, the other podcast. If you want this show to turn into a weekly show, just share it with your friends until we have at least, I think about, if we had about 10 times the listeners, we could do this every <laughs> week. Because that's, that's what it would take to get sponsors. We're, you know, Is that all? <laughs> that's all. Just 10x. But uh, no, we super appreciate you guys still subscribing, even though this doesn't come out very often. Um, we, we appreciate yeah, you. Thanks. And- yeah, we do appreciate it, don't we? And I, I think that the the one thing that I would that I'd say that would probably be helpful is if if there are specific things that you'd like to hear us talk about, then let us know. Yeah, Twitter. 